0: Good morning, everyone. What a pleasure to worship our God, our Lord and Savior. Um, We'll be in Genesis 49 today, if you want to turn there. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we call you Father, because it's a reality through Jesus and that we can worship you, we can sing praises to you, and we're just barely able to scratch the surface of how awesome and how good you are. Words fail, Lord, to to adequately describe your awesomeness, your grace, and your love, and your mercy that you've extended to us through Jesus, and and how faithful you've been to us our whole lives, even when we didn't know you. When we uh, have failed to live up to your, your holy standards, and you have just done everything to redeem us and to reconcile us to yourself, and we thank you for your word that we can hear you speak today. We can hear what you have to say to us individually and as a fellowship, and we pray that we would be attentive and receptive and humble before you, and that we would put into practice and apply your scriptures to our hearts, that you would fill us with your spirit as we have sung, that it would be a reality, and that you would be our all in all, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was once asked by a friend, like, how how would you like to be remembered? What would you like to have written on your tombstone? And questions like that they invite us to take a careful look at ourselves, introspectively, to see if we're actually working towards that, if that's a reality. But I started thinking, I really can't help what or how people think about me. There's there's a there's a point where I can't really do much about that. Uh, depending on who you talk to, someone a prestigious surgeon could be remembered as a lifesaver by his patients or that kid in fourth grade who threw up on the principal's shoes on the bus, depending on who you talk to, right? They would have a whole different view of that person because they grew up with him. Like, Oh yeah, that kid always crying at school. And we were like, Oh, I didn't even know that about him. Um, and we'd love to have our best moments remembered and our worst moments forgotten. Opposite it seems to be true that, uh, Quite often, it's the the one mistake we made that's brought up again and again. And uh, the truth is, we can't redeem ourselves from our faults. Ironically, though, if we confess them, if we admit them before the Lord, he remembers our sin no more. He is able to wash us clean of all that defiles us. And the judgments or opinions of other people about us, good or bad, they don't restrain God's grace and his love towards us. And so... We can strive to be like Christ, to walk in his ways, and to bring him honor through our lives. And uh, it's his word that matters. It's his, it's his, uh, what he says about us, that's the most important thing. So at the end of Jacob's life, he blessed the sons of Joseph. He set the younger Ephraim before Manasseh. He called all his sons together to bless them. And, uh... In this chapter, he gives more than his opinions or his observations of each of his sons, but he really speaks prophetically about them, personally, and in the future, characteristic of their families, because each person was different, each tribe would have different markers of them, and it's an intriguing passage, it's a challenging passage, and I appreciate your willingness to tackle all the scriptures together and to cling to Jesus, that we could receive his blessing, that we could receive his wisdom his righteous character. And while all these were blessings given to the 12 patriarchs, uh, there's a lot for us each to hear and to take to heart and to put into practice as God speaks to us. So Genesis 49, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He calls his sons together. We read last week that he had propped himself up with his staff to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And now he's addressing them all from his deathbed about what would befall them in the last days. And some of these have been fulfilled, some have yet to be fulfilled. His words are poetic, they're also prophetic. Uh, We see that there's parallelism, which is a chief feature of Hebrew poetry throughout this whole passage. Uh, For instance, in verse 2, he refers himself as Jacob, and also as Israel. We know that he was given the name Jacob because he was a heel catcher, a supplanter, and he lived a lot of his life that way until God touched him. And God gave him a new name, Israel, he who prevails with God. And so he, he had these two aspects of his life where he's like, Jacob, this is who I am in my natural sense, but this is what Israel is what God has made me to be. Because of him in my life, I am a changed person. And so he refers to himself as both here. It gives us more uh, insight into the man. Jacob, but Israel, the name that uh, he's called. From that day forward, he walked with a limp, the God who was with him, the God who provided for him every day, redeemed him from all evil. So he begins with Reuben, his firstborn, and I just imagine him kind of going around the room and just going down the line of each of his sons, and he begins with Reuben, one with great potential, but forfeited his privilege of firstborn by his sexual immorality with Bilhah, his father's concubine. We read that Jacob heard about what had happened, that he went into Bilha, but he did nothing about it. But now when it comes to bless, it is, has blighted his blessing. Um by his lust and adultery. And so he's passed over as a leader. He doesn't receive a double portion as the firstborn typically would, but he remained a son. He was not disowned by his father, but he's like, you were the beginning, the excellency of my power. Really, your excellency was mine, but you defiled my couch. Um, and he called him unstable as water. As an element, water is very stable. But water also flows at the mercy of gravity. Uh, Water, as the ship is going through, it splashes and it goes into the ship. You have um, a small child playing in water can disturb the surface. It doesn't take much to disturb water. Uh, When it's heated enough, water boils. And that is similar to how Reuben lived his life. Wherever the wind blew, that's where the current took him. His character was more like water than a solid rock. It's like instead of wisely governing his passions, lust burned within him. When he was brought to a rolling boil, he had to let off steam. And so being at the mercy of his friends and his circumstances and how he was feeling, it led him to um, not excel, to not have priority because he was unstable as water. And we read that there was no judge, no prophet, or ruler who came from this tribe. However, the infamous rebels, Dathan and Abiram, did. They were of Reuben. Chapter 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi, the next sons of Leah, they did not walk in their father's steps. He's described as a mild man. They were violent. They were cruel. They killed Shechem for raping Dinah, their sister. They deceived and murdered all the men of the city. And they plundered their wives, children, and all their wealth, and time alone would not um, forgive or forget this outbreak of violence. Now, it is possible to be angry without sin. It's exceedingly rare. God is able always to do that. But it says that their anger was out of their self-will. It wasn't godly counsel. It wasn't in following their father's example, but it led to violence, and it pleased them to take vengeance on those who wronged their sister in the name of family honor. And so Jacob, he curses their fierce anger, their wrath. Again, he doesn't disown them, but he says they're going to be scattered in Israel. They would be divided. Simeon's inheritance, it would be all surrounded by Judah. So Judah's land, and then you've got Simeon in the middle. And the scattering of the Levites, though, that turned out to be a blessing because God caused them to spread throughout the whole nation to teach his people his statutes and his word in the synagogues and uh, chosen for the, the tabernacle and the worship of God. So there was still great blessing that came from that tribe. Have you guys heard the, the cliche, the apple doesn't far, fall, for, fall far from the tree? Like a lot of cliches, it can be an inaccurate generalization If we see a boy who has no control of his temper, we should not assume that he he learned that from mom or dad um, because the violent conduct of Simeon and Levi was nothing like their father. We don't see Jacob having these wild, violent outbursts and destroying whole towns and plundering them. And we see that in generations to come from the tribe of Levi, there would be people like Aaron and Miriam and Moses who feared the Lord, who served him. So whether you grew up wanting to be like your dad or not wanting to have anything to do with him, by faith in Christ, we have the opportunity to obey our father in heaven. He's always gonna guide us in truth, meekness, love. And because God makes us new creations through faith in Jesus, we're not doomed to follow our genetic disposition. It's not like everyone in the tribe of Levi, oh, we're cursed now. We're divided, we're scattered. No, God would use them to draw people to himself. So God is a redeemer. God God does not leave us in our cursed condition. But that wrath, that anger, that is cursed. And so we should not practice that. God holds his children accountable. He disciplines us to walk in his ways. All right, verse eight with Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The name Judah, it means praised or celebrated. And he's saying, you, your brothers will praise that out of your line will arise kings in Israel. And having read through Genesis, we see that this really bestowment a blessing, is all of God's grace because Judah was a lot like his older brothers, right? He's the one that suggested they sell Joseph. He's the one who lied to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and said, oh, I'll give you Shelah as a, as a husband down the line. He lied about that, and then he slept with her thinking she was a harlot. So Judah wasn't like this respectable, honorable person, yet God extended grace to him, and through him, the line of kings would come. King David of the tribe of Judah, he's saying this in Psalm 1840, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroy those who hated me. I wonder if he looked back upon that prophecy given to his father of fathers and just said, yeah, God's been faithful. He's promised me victory and I'm going to take that By his grace. The lion called the king of beasts. So the tribe of Judah was chosen and ordained by God to rule over Israel. And notice in verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. We read that Shiloh is a biblical location, but in context here, it's a person. It says, To him shall be the obedience of the people. And it points to none other than Jesus Christ. That the, the lawgiver or the, the king would be throughout the tribes of Israel. We read after the Babylonian captivity, there were no more kings in Israel. And it was not until Jesus came that he now has the scepter. And he is the king of kings who will reign with the rod of iron. And this word Shiloh, it means he whose right it is or to whom it belongs So it's his right. He is the rightful king, and he has kept the scepter. Um, There's some really cool connections here with Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, on a colt. And there's a mention of that. And then there's a mention of the vine. We know that Jesus said, I am the vine. So you see some allusions there of Jesus who would uh, rule and reign and who does rule. And it was prophesied before Israel's fall in Ezekiel twenty one twenty five. It says, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. So you see that allusion to he who's right it is. Jesus, the rightful king, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called that in Revelation 5.5. 5. And we read that one day he will tread out the winepress of the wrath of God, and it won't be just um, grape juice on his garments, but the blood of all of his enemies, because he is a mighty warrior king. Now, because the books of the Bible, they're, You know, they're very conveniently written for us. They're all just in one uh, book. We can miss the importance of the fulfillment of prophecy to show that the scriptures are reliable, that they're trustworthy and true. That Jacob, he wrote, he said this around 1650 B.C. Okay, when he's blessing his sons, that's how long ago it was. It was a long time ago. And this was recorded by Moses through divine revelation Now, it was around 700 BC, the prophet Micah also spoke concerning the coming Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, one who would be peace. The wise men, they came from the east seeking the king of the Jews, and the religious rulers identified Bethlehem as the place where the king of the Jews would be born. Now, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2. We're usually reading the first part of this, but we're going to read to verse 5, the first part of verse 5. So this was about 700 years before Jesus was born. This was written. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, "'Yet out of you shall come forth to me "'the one to be ruler in Israel, "'whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. "'Therefore he shall give them up "'until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. "'Then the remnant of his brethren "'shall return to the children of Israel, "'and he shall stand and feed his flock "'in the strength of the Lord, "'in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, "'and they shall abide. "'For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth.'" And this one shall be peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That the eternal God has come forth, become flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. That he's come, he has, his rule extends to all the earth. Um, We see that the Jews, they have returned to their land and that In 1948, the Jews were recognized as a nation again in Israel. And spiritually, the Gentiles have been accepted into the flock of God by the gospel. I love in Zechariah 14, where it says that Jesus will return. He will set his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and he will defeat his enemies and usher in a thousand years of unprecedented peace on earth. And as God has been true in the past, he will be true in the future. We can count on him. So how awesome it is that Jesus has the scepter. He's not passing it off to anyone else. He's not like someone running the Olympics. He's like, all right, it's time to hand off the torch. No, he, he has the scepter. He will always have the scepter. And uh, he's our king. He's my God. Genesis 49, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. He's going around the room. Now he blesses Leah's other sons, Zebulun and Issachar. People have unique dispositions, personalities, interests, occupations. We see this kind of diversity among Jacob's sons. And he speaks prophetically about the location that Zebulun would live, that they would benefit from maritime trade. The tribe of Issachar, however, they took to manual labor. They were pleased to carry burdens. They liked to, to rest and relax. And so it's like a donkey with, you know, the saddlebags on each side. It's like, all right, it's time for a rest. And so he gave himself to manual labor. Rather, was preferred to, like, I'll pay tribute rather than take over more area with my sword, Strong, but content to use his strength to enrich others. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now Jacob's moved on to the sons of the concubines, Bilhah, Bore, Dan, and Naphtali. And among these sons, Dan would be a judge in Israel. We see that Samson hailed from this tribe. Dan, compared to a serpent by the path, bites the horse's heels, that makes the rider fall off. We see that in the book of Judges, Dan was a a tribe marked by idolatry with Micah, if you remember that passage. And also, that was in Tel Dan where Jeroboam, when there was the northern and the southern kingdom, he set up those golden calves there where it's like, it's too hard for you, Israel, to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Offer your sacrifices in Tel Dan, in in the northernmost part of Israel. And then Jacob bursts out with praise. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. The first mention of salvation in the Bible. The name Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew, it means God saves. Now, the Greek word for Yeshua is Isus. And that's the, the English translation is Jesus. So that's how we say the name Jesus is because it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Yeshua. And that's how we have this name, which means God saves. And he is God and he saves. The Gospel of Luke, it tells us an old man named Simeon was in Jerusalem when Jesus was being brought by his parents to be circumcised. And it says he was waiting for the consolation and comfort of Israel. And in Luke 2.27, it says, so he came by the Spirit into the temple So he comes in led by the spirit. He picks up that baby and he's like, I have seen your salvation. I am ready to go. I'm ready to die because I've seen exactly what you've promised. The wait for salvation is over. The salvation has come through Jesus. And if you've not yet received Jesus as your savior, well, what are you waiting for? There's no salvation in any other. Only in Jesus can we find rest for our souls and eternal life. Now, in in contrast to the serpent that's biting at the horse's heels, Naphtali, he was swift on his feet, like a deer in the mountains, and well-spoken. Now, I observe the NIV. It puts Genesis 49, 21 differently. It says, Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Quite different. Now, when you have good translations of the Bible that differ, it's good to see them as complementary rather than contradictory. So, apparently, Naphtali had some very good-looking children. So, he had a a beautiful family, you know, bears beautiful children. Um, Gad and Asher, sons of Jacob's concubine Zilpah, they also had these short descriptions. Gad literally means troop, and uh, this tribe of warriors would be trampled, but in the end, they would triumph. Asher, known for quality bread and delectable foods. And I'm really struck by the differences of these. Now, if you've had kids, you know that no two children are the same. They can be twins, and they're quite different in their dispositions and likes and dislikes. But it's like you have one brother who's a judge, another one marked by athletes, another group of warriors, and other chefs and bakers. Like you have this diversity there. They all contributed to the good of their tribe and the strength of the nation, by God's grace. It wasn't that one tribe was superior over another, but each one did their part and they fulfilled their God ordained role. And really, it's, a, it's almost a picture of the church as well how God has many members. We're all united in Christ and He's given us different roles as we walk in love that we embrace. Okay, verse 22 Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. It's quite an explosion of commendation and praise here for Joseph, being this doubly fruitful bough or vine in a prime location supplied by a well. And it's like, and his branches are going over the wall. So he's providing food for the people inside. And if you were walking by that wall and you, you saw that fresh fruit hanging there, it was yours to take. So it's like, wow, refreshing fruit in a desert place. And, uh, and that's what Joseph was. He was supplying food and life to many people. And it's remarkable that Joseph, once believed to be dead and gone, could be fruitful at all. His dad was lamenting his passing yet he lived and he thrived and he provided. His brothers took aim at him with vicious, hateful words that found their mark, but he remained strong and steadfast. Now, was it due to his dedication or his excellence? No, he was strengthened by the mighty God of Jacob, the God who was with him, the God who helped him. And Jacob said, from there is the shepherd The stone of Israel. And this is the first time again in the Bible that we read of God being referred to as a shepherd or a stone. We're likely familiar with Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a very popular psalm to be read at funerals. The idea being that God shepherds us through this life. He brings us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he provides for us. But really that's a scripture we ought to keep in mind during this life. It's not just something for the end of our life, but to say the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He gives me everything I need now. And he's going to supply everything I need for the future that I don't need. I will never lack any good thing because of my shepherd because of my God. And that's the way we can think and that's the way we can live. Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd in John 10, starting in verse 11. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus owns the sheep. He has purchased the sheep with his own blood. He knows who they are, and we do not want because he is our good shepherd. It says that he cares for the sheep. Praise the Lord, he cares for us. Now, Jacob also caused God his stone. Peter referred to Jesus as the living stone, chosen by God and precious. And many times in Scripture, more than I could count, um, called God the rock of salvation, like David when he sung in Psalm 1846, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. As Moses led the children of Israel through the wilderness, at least twice they drank water miraculously from a rock. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I mean, I've never been followed by a rock before. Have you? I've seen a rock, but to be followed by a rock, this is not an ordinary rock. This is a rock that was supplying all their needs for living water. And what does Jesus offer? Living water through faith in him, the Holy Spirit who fills us and gives us life. God supplied all their needs. And Jesus is now the living bread that's come down from heaven that we partake of and we have eternal life through him. Jacob said that Joseph would be blessed by the almighty God in countless ways, blessings from heaven above and the deep blessings of breasts and the womb, really new life and fruitfulness that there would be children, they would be cared for. And we can look at this in a spiritual sense as well. And, you know, blessed to the bounds of the everlasting hills. It's like the highest of the highs for all time. That's the blessing that God can give. And Joseph being separate from his brothers, remember his dreams where like the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. He was distinct well, it points to Jesus, who was a man distinct from all other men. He came as the Messiah and Savior of souls. Joseph provided grain for hungry people that fed them for a short season in Egypt. But Jesus, he's the living bread who gives eternal life to all who receive him by faith. Verse 27 Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and that, this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Benjamin, the ravenous wolf, devouring prey, dividing the spoil. He would be marked by hunger, an insatiable need that conquest and victory could not satisfy in Judges 19 and 20, we read of this warring tribe. They fought against all the other 11 tribes, and they, I think they killed more people than they had in their tribe, and they were almost exterminated, but God preserved them. Read that King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He spent his entire reign fighting against the Philistines. Mordecai and Esther came from the tribe of Benjamin. They destroyed the enemies of Israel um, in the king's In the times of the Media and Persian Empire, Saul, who became Paul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Matthew Henry said this Blessed Paul was of this tribe, and he did in the morning of his day devour the prey as a persecutor, but in the evening divided the spoil as a preacher. So you see a change in him, right? He went from Saul to Paul, he went from persecuting the church to preaching Christ. Each tribe we see had this unique blessing from the Lord through Jacob, whether it was a rebuke, a promise, or guidance. And frankly, do we see rebuke as a blessing? I don't often see it that way, but the Bible teaches us that we should. That when we're rebuked, when we're corrected, when we're called out in front of everybody, to say, that is a blessing. That is a blessing I will receive from the Lord, because He knows me, He knows my future. He's able to help me and guide me where I'm at. We don't have the luxury of choosing our blessing. Like if you could have your pick, you'd, you'd like that, right? Like, okay, give me 12 blessings. I'll, uh, that's my number one. This is my second one. I'd like to be that you know ravenous wolf, someone tough, you know? Uh, I, I like, this appeals to me. This is what I want to aspire to be. You don't have the the luxury of choosing your blessing. But no, in Christ, we are all blessed. He is blessing, and we're blessed by his grace. He's provided the blessing of being a blessing to God and to others, which is a miraculous gift that we could be used to bless, like Jacob was, who God called Israel. Israel. Verse 29, then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So after Jacob blesses his sons, he he gives them that command again. You're going to carry me back to Canaan, the place where God has given us as an inheritance. You're going to bury me in our family crypt that was purchased by Abraham where all these my fathers were buried and it says, he, he drew his feet into the bed, he breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. In the next chapter, we'll see that his body went through a lengthy embalming process and then they had to carry him physically back. So being gathered was not the burying of his body. He wasn't buried right then. He was embalmed in the next chapter. So this is a spiritual uniting of him with his forefathers. The fathers of faith in God who went before him. So that's what the gathering is in this passage. He was gathered to his people. It happened right then. When he died, he expired. He was gathered to his people. Many people wonder what happens when a person dies. Those who deny the spiritual component of man, they'll say we simply cease to be or we become worm food. Now there's no question, this life is not all there is. For Jesus affirmed that all the dead will be raised. He was speaking to some religious leaders who respected Moses, but they didn't respect or honor him. And so he quoted Moses to show that there is a resurrection. And he said this in Luke 20, verse 37. It says, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So he said, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. So because of that one word, he's like, I am presently God over them. So they're alive. You who trust in Moses, you who don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead, God has spoken. There is a resurrection from the dead, and we will all be judged. God has put, he's an eternal spirit. We've been created in his image. He's created us to live forever. It says he's put eternity in our hearts. Now, why else do you think that man even wonders or contemplates if there's an afterlife? Unless we suspect that it's very much the case, right? We would only deny it because of where we might spend eternity. Jesus' death and resurrection ought to be very troubling to any who deny that there's no life after death because he died, he rose from the dead, he was seen by many people, and then he ascended to heaven before them. So where did he go and where is he now? Well, we know <laughs> based upon what scripture has told us. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 9, verse 27. And you know, I want to be where he is. That's where I want to spend eternity. Hebrews 9, 27. There is no place more exclusive. You think about exclusive clubs or exclusive groups on earth. There is nothing more exclusive than being in the presence with God in heaven forever. And you, there's nothing you can do to buy your way in. There's no way you can earn to be in the presence of God, but you can choose to go by receiving the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. Hebrews 9, verse 27, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. We read that the soul that sins will die and it's appointed for men to die once. Every person will be gathered to their people and will be judged by God according to his righteousness. Those who die in their sins, the Bible says, will be condemned by God's laws. They will face eternal death and hellfire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Yet those who receive the gift of salvation by faith in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven we can gain entrance into eternal life and to be with him forever. Christians, our judgment will not be according to our works for salvation, but it will be a reward, whether we receive a full reward or if we suffer loss. Now, we might not be eager to die, but we believers are all to be eagerly looking forward to our Savior who saves us. So there's no question, biblically speaking, that we will be gathered to our people. The question is, who are your people? It's not talking about ethnicity or your citizenship or your family. Will you be with those who face eternal wrath for their sin or with the born-again children of God and citizens of heaven? Are those your people? So who are your people? What do you want to hear from Jesus on the day of judgment? Depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Or, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. So what we believe and how we live our lives, it matters. It matters for eternity and also the reward we would receive. And it's what God says about us that matters the most. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be summed up as unstable as water. He shall not excel or an instrument of cruelty or a viper who's just by the path nipping at the horse's heels, trying to unseat riders or a ravenous wolf, never satisfied, always fighting I want to live worthy of praise. I want to be that fruitful vine, that branch that's connected to the vine, Jesus, one made strong by the Almighty, by God who is with us, who has blessed us now and forever. So you have a choice. You don't have a choice of who you're, like which country you were born in or who your parents are, but you can choose your people, the people that you're gathered to. And it's through faith in Jesus that we're gathered to him. And we can have an abundant life now and forever by his grace. As it's written in Psalm 144:15, 115, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. I have been ruminating on that passage for days now. And it just is so awesome. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. We can be his people. Let's praise and honor him, our awesome God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for telling us what we need to hear, even if we think that we don't need to hear it. And I thank you for rebuking us, for correcting us, for disciplining us, for teaching us your ways, for opening our hearts to see that rebuke is a blessing and speaking the truth in love is a blessing. And you have spoken to us today, Lord, Knowing that we will be gathered to our people, I pray that we would make our people your people, that we would walk among those who are uh, faithfully following Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to receive the gospel and to live out the gospel, to live in a way that is praiseworthy, where you will say to us one day, well done. Oh, Lord, how we desire to hear those words even today, that we would walk in the way that fully pleases you, that we would bring you glory and honor through humility, through uh, just obedience to what you've commanded us, that we would love you and love one another. We would be those who are faithfully following Jesus ourselves and that you would help us, Lord, to be fruitful spiritually, to be lights for you in our workplaces, and our families, that we would raise our children in the admonition of the Lord, that we would be your faithful followers who honor and glorify you in everything. So I thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be among your people today. And I pray that if there are some here or uh, who hear this message or read these scriptures who do not yet know you, have not trusted you, Lord, that they would turn to you in faith, that there would be repentance for sin. And even in your children, Lord, that we would continue humbling ourselves before you in repentance, seeking to do your will and walk in your ways, for you are glorious and good. And we thank you for being our Messiah, for being our Savior, for giving us these exceedingly great and precious promises that Jesus, he is our stone. He is our Savior, and uh, we live through you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.